0: Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast. The podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone who's looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. Following my recent qualification for nationals in the 74 kilo weight class in powerlifting, I felt like it was apt time to interview my powerlifting coach, and we've decided to call this episode Powerlifting for the Non-Powerlifter. The reason why myself and Charlie wanted to do this was to talk about topics that we felt were relevant to every sport and not just talk about the intricacies of powerlifting. In today's podcast, we spoke about the importance of coach-athlete relationship when it comes to competition. We spoke about how the words you use and how you communicate with your athletes can not just affect their psychology, but their physiology as well. We discuss implications for training lifters of different fibre types and some interesting thoughts that Charlie has on it. We talk about the biopsychosocial model of pain with specific reference to when I tweaked my back in the build-up to my powerlifting meet. And we also talk about how Charlie breaks down training in terms of categorising exercises and what this might look like in terms of other sports. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, let's get to it. So, on today's podcast, I have my powerlifting coach, Charlie Keane. So, myself and Charlie have known each other for two and a half years, having had a lot of help from him in terms of uh, my programming for the last year or so, but I will hand over to Charlie to talk a little bit more about how we first came to working with each other.
1: yeah. so I'm Charlie. As Todd alluded to, we met in sort of May 2017, which is when... You said you did your first powerlifting competition. Our first interaction, if I recall, was um, through a, a Facebook group for the division of the country in the powerlifting you were competing in. And if, if one can look like a deer stuck in the headlights through Facebook messages, that's kind of the vibe that I was getting. Um, and so I, I just felt that you, I had a sort of a rough, Um, introduction into the sport myself in my first competition so I thought it's time to sort of do my bit and help someone have all of the stuff that I didn't have just the guidance for the right things and so then we went in to your first competition how was that as an experience for you
0: uh it was great to finally take it off the uh, ticket off the uh training bucket list so to speak like I'd said for ages I'm going to compete and in my head, I was always like, mm, I'll wait till I'm a little bit stronger. No, I'll wait till I'm ah. a little bit stronger. And uh, to be honest, everyone says it when you speak to them as a first-timer uh, at a meet, but literally no one cares what you lift. No one's sitting oh. there, unlike other sports where, for example, you obviously are competing against other people, but mm. no one cares what you lift. And it's genuinely such a welcoming and unique sporting yeah. environment to compete in. So it's great to finally oh. take it off for of my only a bit of advice to myself looking back is I definitely should have got it done sooner.
1: No, you're definitely right about that, that no one really cares. I mean, like everyone is having a very similar to a experience, similar experience to the one you're having. They're thinking about all of their lists and getting everything else done. And if they're like thinking about you, then they're probably they're wasting energy that they should be channeling elsewhere. So but as I say, no one cares. It's all especially in the first comp you've got that unique opportunity to crack on and do have the experience the way you want to have it.
0: So how did you, how do you yourself get into powerlifting in the first instance, whether it's, or what is your why for getting into powerlifting? Where is it, whether, whether it's you being a coach or you being a competitive powerlifter yourself?
1: Well, I started lifting weights generally, I think in my second term of my first year at university because I thought that was what was going to make me absolutely irresistible to women. Sadly, that's not materialised, but I've kept on having fun, and so I've just kept on doing it. Um, and then it sort of became a thing where I was doing a little bit of um, Thai boxing with the university club, but I was very, very um, very light, very skinny, and I wanted to just do something that might help improve my performance and help me kick people harder, mostly. Um, but it eventually became that I enjoyed the weight training more than it than the kickboxing itself so I sort of started doing less and less kickboxing and more and more weight room training until I was more it was almost completely lifting because that's what I enjoyed more and then eventually through that I discovered that powerlifting as a sport or competitive activity was a thing I thought hang on, this is perfect. This is like lifting weights, but it's a competition. This is exactly what it is about. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've been in this um, abusive relationship with the sport ever since about early 2016.
0: And we we chatted off air and obviously spoken, of, uh, spoken a bit in between uh, the meet and whatnot. And we mutually decided, or you came up with the idea that the almost the theme of this podcast was going to be powerlifting for the non powerlifter. So to people who've heard me chat about that on social media and thought, what on earth is he banging on about? How do you differentiate between powerlifting as in the sport and powerlifter, which you describe as an identity?
1: Well, I think when, when you, it's basically a way of framing doing the same thing. I mean, so both, if you're doing powerlifting or a powerlifter as an identity you will end up at some point on a competition platform doing three squats three bench presses and three deadlifts the way that it's framed though makes a difference to how you approach your training and everything that is not the competition because the amount of time you're competing in like actual time time is very small compared to the amount of time you actually spend training for said competition and so the, the reason why this idea came came to me was just in the way that um, the way that you have some of your own um, ideals and philosophy about training that would, in some sense, not make for the ideal powerlifting performance or be an ideal powerlifter, as in to strictly maximise your total on the squat, bench press, and deadlift but still you want to participate in that activity on your own terms. And so in that sense, I make, I make that distinction of the powerlifting as an activity, as a thing that you are doing or working towards, or as a powerlifter, as a thing that you, that, that you actually are. And there are a whole bunch of behaviours and things that would come with that identity that wouldn't necessarily come through it from the lens of an activity, if that makes any sense.
0: It does. And just to sort of clarify for those people who perhaps don't know me personally, what what sort of programming implications or examples can you specifically give about how I view training and how I like to perform the lifts versus what would be ideal for someone coming to you and saying, look, I want to be, I don't know, the best power lifter that you could make me.
1: Okay. So with your case, it's mostly that I I always have it in my mind when I'm thinking about your training in that how it's something that you wanted to try out and something you're getting involved in. But I know that you have a very, very broad spectrum of sort of athletic or performance interests beyond just doing one rep max squat bench and deadlift. Uh, And as well, and not only that as a sort of a broad scope thing um, and the, the broad scope implications is are that I might not, or one might not be so specific in their training in terms of like the use of the competition movements at varying, um, intensities and volumes is one example. But then again, also other things about say your, your stubborn refusal until very recently to even consider using a belt in, um, in your training or in competition, because if, if you were coming to me and saying, I want to be the, uh, the best powerlifter I can be, that essentially means like I want to have the best total of the squat bench and deadlift on the platform. Uh, and that means if you're not using a belt in that context and all of your competitors are, you are just handicapping yourself. Um, and say you're not even bringing your knife to the knife. Let alone the people who've got the gun at the fight, so to speak.
0: Yeah, Does that makes sense. Yep, just uh, well, uh just yep. Lost... You might also. I was gonna say, also... just lost you ever so slightly there. I, although I think I got the gist of what you were saying in terms of not even bringing a knife to an uh a gunfight. Never mind. Uh, never mind being adequately
1: prepared. That's the one. And then, as as such, those sorts of decisions and attitudes, they will say they're not. They they are the way you choose to lift, and that and then that's it's not for me as a coach to decide your values. Or the way that you wish to train, I'm here to facilitate your goals within the within the context and the constraints that you provide with me. But and so some of the things that lead through are things like the way you squat as well. You mean you squat as you say? You're basically like sitting your ass onto your heels as or as close as you can whenever you squat. Is that that's pretty fair? I think I think we've gotten a bit better over time, but de- like de- squat depth is something I think that would would be reasonably like a defining characteristic of the way you perform the, the the three power lifts and then that I think then I say that leads to things that will further down the line such as the sort of tilting and chest falling patterns which limit your squat and it means that we then have to change um assistance and supplemental exercise selection in order to address that and that may not have been the case if you had been Squatting strictly to depth with a belt. You may have had. We may have had other decisions um, and other choices to make as a result.
0: And in regards to you just said, obviously supplemental lifts, lifts, and uh, assistant lifts. So we obviously you as a powerlifting coach and myself as a strength and conditioning coach, we categorise exercises a little bit differently because obviously training a powerlifter and training an athlete are slightly different things. So you mentioned assistance and supplemental lifts. So. Well, firstly, for people who aren't familiar with these terms, how do you define those terms? And what might that look like in
1: an athlete or a powerlifter's training? Okay, so the way that the categorization that I'm using is pretty much taken straight from things that I've learned from um, Mike Tashir of reactive training systems. Uh, so, so you start with the, the competition exercise, so it will be as, as performed in the competition. Um, with the relevant equipment, then the assistance exercises are exercises where they are very similar in terms of just how they look to the competition movement, but with a changed emphasis to specifically address a sort of like a technical or a mechanical weakness. Um, So that example of that, if we say we'll take the example of the bench press, if you are a raw bench presser and oftentimes if you go and for a high effort bench press and you miss the reps off the chest, then an assistance exercise would be something like a long, long count pause on the chest, um, or something like a very low pin bench press. So we're looking mostly at addressing the movement in that category, which contrasts with something with the supplemental exercises, which are more, um, sort of muscle oriented where it's sort would of be more like close grip bench press or uh, low incline bench press those kinds of movements that would would make you make the engine bigger for that particular lift and then you use the assistance exercises to tune up the engine and get more get more power out of it
0: and we we sort of chatted after the uh, meat just gone which we'll get into in a little bit more detail later but you posed the question to me sort of half rhetorically saying did we get the good results we got because of the how i adapted to the strength or the peaking block in the weeks immediately prior to the meet or was that hard work the result of the uh vicious hypertrophy program you put me through a few months earlier
1: (laughs) i love your choice of adjective there i think that was i think it was sets of 10 on tempo squats i can't believe you i i I could do nothing else but commend your effort, and the results <laughs> seem to have shown, so, to be fair.
0: Would would you say that for stuff like the hypertrophy part of a lifters or an athlete's program, it almost lends itself more to the supplemental exercises in respect of, yes, the technical aspect is important, but it's more just about the stimulus to the muscle group rather than obsessing over exercise selection or
1: yeah it's definitely about that and just as accumulating volume more than anything else and a lot of the exercises i think that tend to go into the assistance slot just don't tend to lend themselves towards the sort of higher rep ranges that one tends to use for supplemental exercises so for example something like pin squats Pin squats, that is going to be a pretty rough ride if you're going to try and do that for a set of 10. There's going to be just a bunch of clanking. And I don't think that by the time you get to the last last few reps, it's going to be even slightly productive. Um, I mean, it could be. I mean, if you fancy it, we can do set to 10 on pin squats and you can tell me how much you hate me afterwards for giving me the idea. Um, <laughs> but... I think yeah, and things as well like pause deadlifts. I think the fact that it's just the sort of the the stress they are very high stress, um, but it's not necessarily the kind of stress that you're after at that time. I think I, that's what hand tends to be for those kinds of um exercises and why they don't they're not as important in those training phases.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I I had a friend of mine message me after I posted on Instagram about qualifying for national saying to me Uh, what's the plan now then with nationals being so close, how are you going to deload it and uh, basically then obviously start the program again, if you will. And whilst I'm not the brains behind the operations, I said about having to try and avoid adaptive resistance in terms of not jumping straight back into what we've had so much success with um, of late. Um, For listeners who aren't familiar with the term adaptive resistance, do you want to explain one, what the term means to you? And uh, two, the what that means in terms of when you've got longer blocks of training and trying to avoid running
1: into adaptive resistance. See, this is where I start tripping up because you've actually got the formal education in the subject and in the in strength and conditioning as a whole, whereas I'm a nerd that read some books. And you trust <laughs> me for some reason. So really, what it, what my understanding of it is that we've exposed you to a very similar stimulus in terms of the sort of a training microcycle repeatedly over and over in the build up to this this competition that we did that you did um now eventually like the body adapts to any stress you put on it you either adapt or you die thank you so i mean that's just probably not something you should aim to be thinking about when you're fighting training adapt or die unless unless your name is like Ivan Drago or something like that (laughs) Um, but yeah eventually things stop working if think if things didn't stop working we would all do we would all do the starting strength linear progression or something in that similar sort of class of programs and ride them all the way up and be squatting 500 and benching 300 in a year and a half or something like that Someone's going to do the maths on that on how the rates progression work. I don't know. I'm making numbers up, but you see the point. You see <laughs> yes. the point. Eventually you, you, you adapt to something and it doesn't work anymore. So something has to change. Um, but the question is, is I think that if you take enough of a break away from something, you do sort of resensitize to it a bit and then you can, so that's the idea of what we're going to sort of go through forwards. We're going to take a little bit of time to, um, resensitize and then um get back after it one
0: of my one of my favorite strength coaches uh has a a brilliant way of simplifying things much like you do but he uh his name's dan john and he literally just calls it same but different exercises and he say let's say you've done a lot of bench press then maybe you go to a wide grip bench press for a while or maybe you go to an inclined press um, which I think is just a very simple way of uh, avoiding adaptive resistance. You mentioned there about linear periodization. And one of the biggest impacts you had on my training compared to when I was writing my own programs was a switch over to an rpe based uh, style of training rather than using uh, what's commonly used, which is just a percentage of one rep max for uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with the RPE system in terms of how it might apply to strength training, um, do you want to give a little bit more background on, well, firstly, what it is, and secondly, why it might hold some distinct advantages over, say, using, simply using percentage of a 1RM?
1: Okay, so RPE as a concept was first or initially developed in the context of aerobic training by Gunnar Borg and it was on a 6 to 20 scale, and that was to be used for gauging the effort levels of a given session of aerobic work. The idea was that the scale would mean you would multiply that effort level by 10, and then that would give you a rough approximate heart rate that would line up with that kind of intensity of work. So 20 being the top of the scale, and so 200, like, max heart rate, Is sort of where it lines up, and then somewhere along the along the line, a person who I've mentioned earlier on, Mike Tashira, came over and mapped this concept over into into resistance training and specifically into powerlifting. In that we now we have a way to assign a numeric value to the effort required to complete a given set of an exercise. So typically, like if we go backwards from the top for the the RPE scale in the context of powerlifting. So an RPE 10 is a maximum effort. You could not have completed any more repetitions. Um, nine would be you, you finish the set and you could have done one more repetition. Um, eight, eight is you've got two, seven is three and then anything less than a seven and things start to get a bit fuzzy. But that's the utility lies at the top of the scale. And you can also have half RPE increments where there's a certain degree of uncertainty um, on how many reps that you could have completed.
0: And in terms of using RPE in athletes training, do you think, or let me think of a better way to phrase this question, actually. So with some of the youth athletes I've been working with over the last couple of years, I've introduced it as a means of making them more mindful about how difficult an effort was, and trying to get them to understand that the adaptation comes from the intensity rather than a specific weight on the bar. Uh, right. Obviously, this comes with its own problems in the sense of for someone who's newer to training, you'll see them do an effort and they'll write down, I don't know, a nine. And you're looking at them and you're looking at the effort thinking, well, it wasn't really a nine. Um, but obviously, their, their newness to training, for want of a better word, means that that rpe might take a while to calibrate how would you go about either framing rpe or introducing it or maybe not even using it at all in terms of just getting a gauge on how intense your athlete is finding the training
1: well the thing i think it is most important to realize about rpe and the thing i think a lot of people who sort of um sort of wave their hand away at using rpe in their training is that it all there is it's always there, whether you measure it, number it, think about it or not. There is always a certain amount of effort that it takes you to to complete a given set in your training program the all all that the r p is doing is now actually asking you to to think about it it's literally just going one step further that, that's that's the main thing when you realize that you will see effort is necessary to train effort is necessary to complete a set and now all you're doing it's there it took that certain amount of effort but now it's just asking you to to just go a little bit further and say but how much it's just that one step beyond
0: yeah yeah that makes sense and you mentioned in the initial or the initial origins of rp if you will um coming from energy system type training and uh almost trying to shortcut the need for a heart rate monitor in the sense of if you know where your effort level lies you can just multiply by 10 and get a, a rough estimate on your heart rate and in terms of technology and training i remember we i once sort of asked your opinion about velocity-based training um so i'm sort of going to do that again now okay do you think that velocity-based training is overrated for powerlifting
1: yes unequivocally yes I think you can go and look at a bunch of the stuff that um, I think is Chris Duffin or maybe even um, Mike Zordos and Eric Helms have done, but they've looked at, um, they've done studies or at least someone has. And I'm, as I say, this is where, where I start spieling off is the correlation between your bar speed and your velocity is pretty much one-to-one. They think there's something like the, um, the R value is something like 0.98. There's basically like no distinction between the two. Um, I think the thing is that some people, they find some sort of comfort in the bar speed or the velocity because it's objective in some sense. And you can't see me, but I'm doing like the air finger marks when I say (laughs) objective and it's true. It is objective because it gives you, it gives you the speed that you're lifting at. But I think that often that misses out on a lot of the picture. Um, Whereas the, when you use the RPE instead, it captures um, the subjectiveness is where its advantage lies because that then captures all of the sort of the intangibles about your state when you are training. That's like your, your sort of your mood, your stress, your energy levels. And that's something that you can't sort of even begin to, to pull out from a um, open barbell or a Tendo unit or something like that.
0: I think ironically in terms of objectifying, I think that's the issue a lot of people have with an RP style training as well. Like I was certainly guilty of it when you first started programming for me. So for example, you might've put something like, uh, hit a single at RP eight and then take off 20% for five fives or whatever. And I would say to you something like, so what weight is RP eight then? And you'd be like, no, yeah. no, no, you're no, missing
1: no, no. the point. I mean, that's, I mean, another thing I think people mistake is that they they conflate the use of RPE with the idea that it's, oh, I'm just going to go to the gym and go- do whatever I sort of feel like. I don't want that to be that, to sort of straw man it that strongly, but it's more the fact that they are somewhat... I don't know, maybe you're a little bit scared of sort of like either low balling it or overdoing it, depending on the personality of who it is, like they'll swing one side or the other of it. but the thing is it's really not actually like as loose loosely structured as um as you might lead to be be led to think in the terms of say like if you're doing a brand new exercise then and you've got to do a set with a certain r p rating then yeah, you're gonna, you might get it a little bit wrong, but then you've actually got, you've got your first data point, and then you could, you then use that, and you can work out a rough target, which should, which is what the RPE you would expect it to be next time you perform it, and then if things are easier or harder based on how on the effort rating that you actually perceive when you do it the next time, that's when the those sort of fine fine tune adjustments come in.
0: And in terms of fine tune adjustments and using RPE. Again, one thing that you've introduced, or one of the biggest things you've introduced to my training, as well as the RPE, is something we've done recently uh, called emerging strategies. For people who've never heard of that concept, do you want to talk a little bit about what it is and how it might differ to say planning an entire eight-week block in advance?
1: Well, what we've been doing is not the sort of the platonic idea of emerging strategies in the way that Mike Deshira talks about it, but the the but some of the things that we've been doing have been very much guided by the, by the philosophy and the sort of epistemology of the emerging strategies approach. And it's basically about, it's a way of planning training such that you minimize noise. And so you can try and actually detect a signal from it um, and actually figure out what's really, what's really going on. So in this in this setup, it will be establishing a, a training week or a training microcycle, and then you within that training microcycle, you might have you will have like indicator lifts. So things these are things like your singles at um, an RPE eight, and then you repeat it and you follow the trends of those indicators until they keep until they stop going up. Um, there's a whole, I, I think I could. That's just a rough concept of what it is. It's about simplifying the training down as much as possible in order to sort of pick out uh, actual signals of things that you're responding to. I could ramble on for a whole other episode about that, so I'll stop there for the time being.
0: And and at risk of potentially uh, diving down the rabbit hole too much, how easy or how difficult do you think it is to apply an emerging strategies type approach In sports where inherently there are going to be a lot more noise. So, for example, in powerlifting, the only noise you have to contend with is that of your own training program. uh, In the sense of you can control a lot of the controllables when Mm. it comes to frequency, intensity, etc. Whereas if, let's say, you were using an emerging strategies type approach to, uh, let's say, rugby or football when you've now got a lot more noise in the system in terms of the weekly game, how difficult that is. Do you think that's just a non-starter or do you think there is potential if you accept the constraints of that kind of approach
1: in that context? That's a really good question. I mean, I don't see why there's a a reason why you couldn't try it. I mean, fundamentally, you're still doing training, right? So why you would necessarily want to make a whole bunch of undulations in an already chaotic system or a chaotic setup like you would in, in a team sport such as rugby or football. Um, just to add more on, more chaos on top of chaos wouldn't necessarily make any sense to me. But I mean, it's even worth considering that the concept of emerging strategies does not originate in powerlifting. It comes, it came to Mike Tashira through Derek Everly who in turn worked and is still working with um, Anatoly Bondachuk to this day so that's the the whole idea of that sort of repeated um, stimulus to minimize noise and identify signal it doesn't even start within powerlifting it starts within track and field and I think probably the track and field is is, is noisier inherently than powerlifting is so I think it's something that people could try. I mean, I don't think I'm in any any way qualified or experienced enough to suggest how one might might do it, but I I don't see a reason why not to try it or at least think about it.
0: Uh, I suppose one of the things that springs to mind for me in this is that in powerlifting there are maybe probably three metrics you care about in the sense of emerging strategies. So, for example what your rp8 single is doing in squat bench deadlift whereas mm. if you tried it in i don't know um let's say tennis like you might do the speed of the serve but then a tennis coach would come along and be like yeah he's serving faster due to the training but he's mm. also sending it right down the middle for his opponent yeah. to return serve so i think in my opinion that would be another yeah. it would be a struggle as to what be, metric it would you would be use a
1: struggle to, yeah to identify something like you say in tennis um Are you playing on a faster court? What's the wind like? Or if you just opened a new can of balls, how much are you specifically serving? As in, I think possibly like in that case where you have sporting, um, like indicators that are less repeatable or as in like less consistent, I think not to say that like the tennis players don't have a consistent serve, but it's harder to measure, um, Or to identify when two serves are very similar as opposed to say like two squats or two deadlifts
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense um and i'll be damned if i can remember the name which is awful because i'll have to chase up and put it in the show notes um but you touched upon something there in terms of the other variables that are perhaps a little bit out of control in terms of for example uh the wind uh balls court surface whatever what are some of the mistakes you, or off the back of that? What are some of the mistakes you see when it comes to people using technology in training? So, for example, um, we spoke ages ago, and you told me about how you stopped using your Fitbit to monitor your sleep data. Yes. Um, what are some of the downsides of using or being overly reliant on technology in training?
1: Well, the reason why I stopped using, I'll work from that specific example first. The reason why. I... I did that is because it stemmed from a a study that was done. I believe I read about it in the uh, Barbell Medicine Literature Review. It was about how people's, it's almost like your perception of how awake or how tired you are matters more than how rested you actually are. Because they would basically had people monitor their sleep. Um, they would wake up and answer a subjective questionnaire about how they felt. And then when it turns out they were feeling great, but then they checked their device, and then the, the numbers on their Fitbit or whichever device you're using um told them, Oh, actually hang on, you got like five percent REM sleep and you're only set for four and a half hours, and they, they um instantly started feeling worse again, and they're like some some outcomes for the rest of the period of the study that they were looking at, like declined in that group. So it's the fact that there are some things that you that you don't really want to know about because knowing about them one way or the other like can actually have a impact on your outcomes
0: and on on that subject and again i haven't put this in the uh questions i've sent across to you but in terms of coaching an athlete or even coaching myself as an example how difficult is it to tread that line between coaching somebody at a meet when you're like right There's some things they need to know, and there's some things which, whilst it's nice to know, that's probably going to negatively impact their performance. Even though, for example, they need to be doing X, Y, Z with this lift. How do you tread the balance with being a coach at a meet in terms of what you do say and what you just keep to yourself, and maybe chat about after the meet?
1: See, I think that is very largely dependent on on the athlete in question and their personality and their tendencies. So. For example, in your case, I know that you are very analytic. You like to think things through very, very thoroughly and from all angles. And that is often to your detriment. And so that and the example of how that um, goes through into the into the competition day would be um, your attempt selection. Now, after you've done each of your lifts, we pretty much I just gave you a number or you already knew you knew the right number. You went over to the desk and gave it to them but I had written down on my phone about eight different permutations <laughs> of, of the way that we were going to get to 500 kg based on what you squatted and then what you bench. Cause then we've, we've got various different levels of two and a half or five kilo jumps. um To consider that you are either you've either already banked or have got to catch up somewhere. And now I imagine this is my, my guess that if you were thinking about that at the same time as having to actually go out on the platform and lift them, your focus would not have been there. Then you wouldn't have performed quite as well as you would. Uh, Whereas some, some people are quite can sort of like take that information, acknowledge it, and then just calm down again. So um, I'll say, I think that's very, um, that's very much, um, as I say, athlete dependent. Also, in terms of say like the um the language you you use on or the things that I might shout at you whilst you're on the platform, I try to make them like as sort of both basically they're as general as possible and they are more about sort of effort than they are about anything technical. Because like by the time you're at the competition, it's too late to do anything technique wise, at least in terms of a raw powerlifting competition. So you've just got to make sure that they get the most, the most important thing done, settle in, and then get ready to work.
0: And diving into, or sorry, going back to, you mentioned in the Fitbit study you read that they, as soon as the person wearing the Fitbit had received information that was potentially negative, I, you didn't sleep as well as you thought, and that then influenced their behavior. Uh, I would just want to talk about the biopsychosocial model of pain, which again is worth a whole podcast in itself. Oh, but
1: yeah. oh, absolutely. We'll,
0: we'll keep it brief from uh, that regard. So just,
1: while we, while, just before you dovetail into that, I'm just very quickly going through an issue of the barbell medicine literature review, because it's relevant about the, the sort of like nocebo from um, information gathering. Um, the, the paper was called Learning One's Genetic Risk Changes Physiology Independent of Actual Genetic Risk. That was by Turnwald et al. in 2018. So there, this, this is in a similar way to the um, sort of like the nocebo sleep studies. This was people being told they either had a certain genotype which either made them more have a higher risk or higher resilience to a certain um, certain like physical stressor and then obviously they had split it four ways and the people that were told they were more resilient had better outcomes regardless of what their actual uh, genotyping was so that's something that you might i think that is probably the most uh, illustrative example of that whole concept
0: and i'll go back to the biopsychosocial yeah, question please, i had please, in a um but that raises another point and a question i asked you a while back about uh, programming implications for, let's say, quote-unquote, fast-twitch athletes versus slow-twitch athletes. And you brought up a couple of really interesting points in regards to actually determining and defining fast-twitch and slow-twitch athletes, which to some listeners might sound um, a little bit uh, teaching people to suck eggs because we've all seen athletes who are ridiculously explosive. We've all seen athletes who can... Uh, bash out the long duration work for hours on end and it's very easy to place people into this fast twitch and slow twitch box um can you just share some of the thoughts that you shared with me when it came to that me questioning about programming for faster or slower twitch athletes
1: oh god i can't remember man i just dumped everything i was thinking about into that blog post and then sort of left it there um if you want you can link that one in the show notes at this point but that's basically how we conflate slow twitch and fast twitch in, in meaning things that they don't actually mean. Um, We think about it in terms of what we actually know is they, they tend to be able to have like a high power output or like be able to maintain a certain level of effort for a long period of time. You don't know that they're slow twitch or they're fast twitch unless you've actually like taken a muscle biopsy and had it analyzed in a lab so and then the implications are that the the language you use on them can then affect their the attitudes to the training that you then give them so if you if you if if someone has had it ingrained into them that they are a quote unquote slow twitch athlete um and you use that language when you're training someone in the weight room who is say been a long distance runner you may have potentially sort of substantially like reduced their Potential positive outcomes because their buy buy-in is not there anymore because they're not expecting it to work because of that language that and that sort of idea that you set in their head. Whereas in in reality, it's more about exposure to certain stimuli than it is about actually digging into someone's muscle fibers. And go and list everyone. Just go just go and like digest everything Andy Galpin has ever said. He's he's just that's that's basically what I want if you're going to have one take this is Todd's going to have his own takeaways this is mine go and listen to everything Andy Galpin and Mike Teixeira have ever said that just you'll be so much better off having done it yeah there we go and thank you night, we'll end the
0: podcast there um going back to i'm gonna try and uh, try and retrace my steps now i think so, i've
1: taken you a bit off track so no, that's all good
0: that. going back to the biopsychosocial stuff and this is again my sort of two pennies worth would be for anyone to look at the stuff that barbell medicine have put out in regards to this um it's
1: barbell medicine um greg lehman is another great one he put out this free ebook about the both for a patient and a clinician about the sort of like rudimentary pain science um education and it was so good i went to a printer and had one printed and bound for me because i find myself going back to it time and time again
0: i'll uh again i'll I'll link try and link that into the show notes as well um so one of the as of many other things i've sort of taken from you in terms of you program for me over the last year or so so prime example going to talk about the uh, something which a lot of people have suffered with at some point and that's back pain um now I remember when I tweaked my back, literally grabbing a 25 plate and uh, Chuck going to chuck it on the bar. And my dad tweaked his back doing a, uh, bodyweight squat. Now, when my dad tweaked his back, he then became fearful of movement. He, um, I'm going to swear on the first time for the podcast, but quote unquote, I said, how did training go? He said, I fucked my back. I was like, have you really like, have you really, um, But what are some of the recommendations? Have you
1: just been hit by a train and is your spine in 87 pieces? That's what I would call fucked. Yeah. Yeah. I think let's, yeah, let's not, not get, let's not get too hyperbolic about it. So how does. And that's part, that's part of the, part of the, um, sort of the thinking and the treatment. Sorry, I'll let you carry on. No, that's
0: all right. So just using, I'm hoping you can remember this example. Otherwise this will fall flat on its face. So I messaged you and I said. Oh, I, I've tweaked my back, I'm in a, a fair bit of pain, what What do I do sort of thing? And your response was?
1: It was mostly just about talking you down could, from the panic about it. Because you would, you, I mean, it's understandable that when you have or when anyone has some sort of like tweak or substantial pain experience while training, you panic about it because it's important to you and you don't want to be apart from pr- from it. So but unfortunately it's the sort of one of the factors that is most strongly correlated with negative outcomes in terms of low back pain is the idea of catastrophization. And say so you've taken you start with the pain experience in your back and you go, oh no, my back hurts. That means something is gone in my in one of my discs that means oh my god I end up in a wheelchair. I'm never going to be able to train again and you end up with that whole train of um, negative emotion and that seems to substantially worsen outcomes in the long run
0: and well on that subject so a few notes I've got scribbled in front of me because one of the things you sent me which again if anyone listens to this ever suffers a back tweak in training the first thing you need to do is uh, Google app, uh, sorry YouTube Alan Thrall and back tweaks so
1: interestingly he... I literally had to do this with someone in my gym yesterday It was one of the personal trainers at my gym. The gym that I train at is very small and everyone's very friendly. Um, And he's been like really working on his deadlift, but he's not really like his weights are not his main thing. He likes to play football and do a bunch of like actual sports as opposed to just lifting iron up and down. And he had a he went for a second rep on a fairly high effort deadlift and then like dropped it. He said he tweaked his back and you could tell he was all sorts of panicking. And so I just said, Literally was pretty much you could see him panicking because he like he wanted to sort of like twitch his feet and move around but he was hurting and worrying about it so I just literally had to tell him to to reassure him first of all that a he was going to be all right and got him to do some some like little drill or exercise which there was nothing inherent about that exercise that would have made him feel better but it was more about giving him the sense that there was something that he could do and that he was in control of the situation that would cut would soothe his nerves and he, and he in the end after this two minutes of this little drill of basically getting him to sort of like lie on his front and prop his torso up for like two minutes or so it he, he caught would almost gone d- down completely and then i kind of told him just to do like a few like air deadlifts so just sort of like hinging at the hips and back up again as far as he could keep working through it and then i spoke to him earlier today and he said like the thing that would have Normally, if he'd experienced that before, he would have taken a couple of weeks off it altogether, but he feels fine today.
0: And just to reiterate to people who've sort of heard this concept for the first time, this is not to say that there is no... Every single back sweep, there's nothing physic, no, no. physiologically I've wrong.
1: Got to, I've got to put a very, very huge, enormous disclaimer out here, okay? Like, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a physio, I, but I have seen real impacts in... Taking this biopsychosocial approach to pain as experienced explicitly in the context of weight room training in pretty much always in adult males, that is as far as the scope goes. It does not apply to pretty much anything else, but the reason why I am so sort of emphatic about it is because that is I see a lot of people within that specific demographic that that end up sort of handicapping themselves by overreacting to uh pain experiences in this way
0: yeah and uh the the analogy i would give and i I don't know whether it's a generational thing or whether it's uh, i mean there's obviously a lot to do with upbringing but as i described to you my dad said he'd fucked his back and he was literally doing a bodyweight squat it wasn't like he was lifting 200 kilos um but when we
1: i've tweaked my back reaching down for the bar in a deadlift i didn't even i hadn't even got my hands on it i was reaching down for it and something went pop and i was in agony it, 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 it sometimes it happens
0: yeah yeah and it's one of those things where again going back to that alan thrall video and going back to some other research i've seen um and i'll be damned if i can remember the figures but it's I want to say it's something like 25% of people who are perfectly healthy. If you did an MRI on their knees, there would be um, significant damage um, to them, but they're absolutely fine and just carry on as normal. The um, numbers
1: are even higher. There was a something similar done in um, MRIs of people's lumbar spines. Um, uh, there's some, some shocking percentage of them um, had at least, at least at least one herniation herniation of a disc that would be like classed as clinically significant and of that big proportion like a a fraction of a percent of them actually reported any pain or any sort of symptoms at all i will will, will, i'll have to dig that that specific source out for you afterwards but that's just such that's such a important illustrative result of this this framework i think
0: and just to sum up the content that you've passed on to me and sort of how i've approached my back tweak versus saying my dad um so my dad comes back and says he's fucked my back he's fucked his back sorry um i send a similar response to you and you say "Watch this and they literally talk about right is there a load that you can use that is less painful even if it's body weight is there a Different, is there a different range of motion you can use in the same exercise that is less painful so let's say you go from full depth back squatting uh, ass to grass like I tend to do to maybe a box squat a parallel um, yeah. and just basically trying to keep some kind of training stimulus in there not just for the physical uh, side of things but just the fact that by very notion that you are continuing to move and being reassured is going to well, r- literally reassure you that Everything is not as broken as you might perceive it to be.
1: No, that is exactly that is exactly what it is. It's as much about as giving as much autonomy and keeping the locus of control within the within the athlete or the injured person that we speak of. It's about keeping it with them because if there's something you can do, then there's something you can do, and then that is that does reinforce that sort of autonomy and that helps build the reassurance that you're not as as your dad say fucked
0: yeah yeah and one of my again trying not to go off on a tangent here but one of my pet peeves when i have athletes see physios is when the physio says yeah just take two weeks off and come back and see me and i'm like um if you've sprained your left ankle there's a hell of a lot you can still be doing even if you don't want to rehab said issue
1: why would you not want to take two weeks to just like bench until your pecs fall off? I don't understand. <laughs> I do not understand why you would not want to do that.
0: I was going to say every youth and male athlete I've ever coached. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, like, I'd be like jumping jumping at it if I was like 16, or would wreck my ankle. It's like, all right, it's time to, oh, we're going to get, I'm going to look like, say, like Johnny Bravo by the time I'm back on the pitch <laughs> or something.
0: <laughs> you like, coach, I've, uh, I've heard of this German volume training. And, <laughs>
1: uh,
0: oh. Uh, I realise we've got uh, so far into the podcast and I've almost skipped past the whole notes I've jotted down for the uh, Challenge 500 malarkey. Um, so oh we'll yeah, we su- want to talk about that, I suppose. The- yeah, I mean, I suppose we've not. It's, it was uh, a
1: pretty pretty big, pretty big deal, you know, yeah.
0: <laughs> right, so uh, right. For, those, for those people who I've not bored to death with it, um, to introduce what I mean by that is uh, when I first started powerlifting, my first total, which was the only competition that I didn't Work with uh, Charlie for I totaled 420 kilos in the 74 kilo weight class and the weekend just gone um, I think four or five competitions later I think Charlie knows the numbers better than I do um, but totaled 500 kilos at 74 kilos body weight which means that I've qualified for nationals which will be on uh, September the 1st um, but going back to the sort of journey well going back through the lessons I've learned through the process of Charlie programming for me um, and obviously making the progress that I uh, have done. So first thing I'm gonna get started into is uh, what Charlie referred to as a Frankenstein's monster approach to my own uh, programming. Um, for reference, the, Frank, the, how I'm familiar with the term to be used is when people, for example, see the need for an arm day or a uh, chest day, but somehow miss out leg day and back day, or they segment the body into uh, body parts like you'd see a bodybuilder do. Um, but when you said that I was Frankenstein monstering my training, so to speak, you weren't referring to body parts. Um, no. What were you referring to?
1: Well, I was referring to you taking, vet, taking programs or templates that exist, say like online or wherever you might find them, um, and sort of stitching them together and hoping you end up with a coherent uh, a successful program at the end. So like, for example, say, right, you're going to do Smolov Junior for your bench, you're going to do Johnny Candido's nine-week program for your squats, and you're going to do what Ed Cohen did for the deadlift. And you're going to mush that all together, and that's going to be your program. That's sort of what I was referring to.
0: And for those people who are listening, why, might that, why is that actually a pretty poor way of looking at things?
1: Um, it's a poor way of looking at things if you don't know what you're doing. Because oftentimes these, like especially for these sort of like single lift programs, they tend to be like specialization cycles. And with a specialization cycle, you're necessarily going to have higher stress on that particular thing that you're focusing on. But there is only a there is a only a total amount of tra- and it's a finite amount of training stress that you're going to be able to handle from and recover from. So if you're going to take A bunch of different programs and throw them all together if you you may end up stitching together three different specialization cycles and you end up with what would be drastically too much work um and then yeah as a result you may increase your risk of um you won't get the results you you expect to see because you'll be in so much fatigue that any all the fatigue is going to ludicrously outscale like fitness or adaptation um and that level of chronic overwork um, correlates with increased um, injury risk with, of, of sorts of injuries that we discussed earlier.
0: And in regards to the fitness fatigue uh, theory, which I imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast will be uh, somewhat familiar with, in regards to how quickly certain qualities uh, recover and adapt Going into the meet of the weekend, we did a slightly different taper for we did. Uh, my bench press. Do you want to chat a little bit about, um, the well, one, the logic behind that, and two, what it was that made us decide that that might have been a more effective route to go than what we'd done previously?
1: Well, so it has been both my personal experience, my experience with you and your training outcomes, and the experience of other coaches of powerlifting that I have spoken to both at a distance and in person, that the, the sort of the, the fitness aspect, say for something like the bench press is, tends to decay a lot faster than it does for the squat or the deadlift. I think that's, I think the reasons for those is kind of twofold is a, that the the loads used typically in, in the, in the raw bench press are substantially lower than they ever are um, compared to the squat or the deadlift. Um, you, I think you can look, if you want, you can go and do some maths on the data set from open powerlifting and work out the, um, so even just like the average component percentage wise, your bench makes up of a raw total, but it is often quite a bit lower. And the other thing is, I think that the the um, the bench stress is is relatively decoupled, whereas I think there is a lot of lot of overlap in the sort of the um, in the curves. Well, overlap and correlation with the curve say, like for the squat, and the dead deadlift, because they they involve a lot of the same muscle groups. Uh, and so I think as a result that you've got a bigger thing to sort of come up from. So it takes a while for it, everything to start to appear to. Decline again,
0: and going. Uh, I think it was a podcast you sent me with Mike Tashir and uh, Derek Evely, where he was talking about uh, time to peak in terms of powerlifting and saying that there could be a case of counting. Um, so again, you'll hopefully correct me if I'm wrong, as this is uh, it's not a it's not an area that I'm hugely familiar with, but just have a basic grasp. But basically, the concept being that. Um, each athlete has a certain amount or a certain time to peak that works for, uh, seems to work for them in a certain scenario. And if you haven't listened to it already, Derek Everly and Mike Tashira talking, uh, in one of the RTS uh, reactive training systems podcasts, Derek Everly talks about training a heptathlete and exposures to the jumping events. And Bondichuk said to him that there was a certain athlete needed 40 exposures to the jumps in order to peak, but they didn't realize that the high jump and the long jump are so similar that they count as a separate exposure. So for example, you might need 40 total, but that's made up of 20 exposures to the high jump, 20 exposures to the long jump rather than 40 each. And he suggested that if you're looking at that for a powerlifting perspective, that a deadlift and squat exposure might be so similar that, they count for the same which again would kind of tie in with what you're saying about bench pressing needing more exposure there, because there there's would, less there crossover. would
1: be an interesting way to sort of test that out or at least try and start teasing that out is if you had someone for, like have first of all train train for a full power three lift competition uh, like wash them out before going into a specific training cycle for a a push-pull event with no squatting at all, and then you might see if their time to peak on the deadlift changes as a result. That would possibly be one way of teasing out, first of all, A, if they are as coupled as I'm guessing they are, and B, if they are at all coupled, just to what degree they actually um, interplay. That's an idea.
0: It's it's just popped into my head. I think it was stolen from a Quinn Hennock podcast where he speaks about mitigating, I think mitigating knee pain or back pain or something like that. And he talks about exercise variation and he gave the example of using a squatty type uh, trap bar deadlift and saying, you're still getting an overload stimulus of some kind, but it'd be interesting to see what using just a slightly tweaked stance on a trap bar deadlift would have in terms of best of both worlds and in terms of, uh, like, for example, if you're training an athlete who's not a powerlifter, it probably really doesn't matter hugely no. if they trap bar deadlift, if they back squat, as long as there's some kind of leg strength in there, it probably isn't hugely, it probably doesn't matter hugely.
1: Oh, I completely agree with that, definitely. it's, it's The only time you specifically would need to squat with a, with a seven-foot barbell on your back to below parallel as illustrated in the in the rule book of most powerlifting federations is if you're going to do a powerlifting competition when that's not the case everything all of that goes out the window and you can and you have a lot more to play with
0: yeah and i think ironically um there's people who either fall into two camps in terms of either a as you said do you really need the powerlifts or or b oh if your athletes aren't squatting uh low parallel then you're doing a terrible job as a strength and conditioning coach
1: yeah that's not that's not a good attitude to have I don't think going back to the uh the coach
0: athlete relationship so we yes we've met in person a couple of times but most of your programming for me is obviously done online and uh I will feed back to you with regular videos so my question is like if you scroll through instagram there's loads of stuff saying oh are you still training your clients in person you're missing a trick um, and more yeah. advocating this online model what are some of the potential problems you see with online coaching and what are some of the solutions you pro- propose to mitigating these problems
1: dude like online coaching is so much harder i don't know what these people are on about if they i mean if they're moving into a model is where you're basically signing people up on an email, taking some payments on PayPal and dishing them out a spreadsheet once every four weeks, then yeah, sure. But we've been in this fortunate situation where we are not too drastically separated geographically that we've been able to train with one another in person. And each time of those sessions, I feel like we get done in those those sessions about 10 times as what we get done over like four weeks of phone calls and videos and voice chats. Well, do you say that's true as well? I,
0: I, yeah, absolutely agree. Um, funny enough well, on, on that subject it's why when people say, oh, I've bought this program online or I've done this, done that, and i like, go and see a coach because what you will get from that one session will you know, amplify whatever yeah. the hell you were hoping to achieve by doing a program
1: that you bought online. No, completely agree with that. Um, if you're going to make the distance they work, I think it's about, A, it's communication and expectation. You've got to, you have to be completely, as from the athlete's perspective, I think you have to be completely honest. You're not trying to say, convince your coach that you are some, some good and moral person and not tell them the whole truth because then you're just damaging your own outcomes. That's a mistake I've made in the past is that I've, I've sort of tried to impress coaches. Cause I feel like, cause the, I feel like their opinion of me matters in, in that, in that capacity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and as such, they've missed out on important information that I've not told them. Um, and that's resulted in some, um, inappropriate training and programming decisions. Uh, so that, that is absolutely, honesty is, is crucial. Really, really it is. And I feel we like, you are completely, completely honest with everything that needs to be um, needs to be discussed between the two of us.
0: And well, just from from my two cents, the and again, this sounds like I'm getting on my soapbox, but there's a reason I'm passionate about it. And you've, you you kind of touched upon it there. There's a huge difference between, for example, when we can see each other in person and you can physically coach me there and then. Um, me sending you videos and you you know maybe giving me feedback on those. So there's a massive difference between what I would call online coaching and what I would call online programming.
1: Um, Absolutely. And
0: you've got a nice little analogy I like. um, And If you can't remember it, then I'll refresh your memory. But I asked you in the sort of build up to this podcast, had you done any other coaching besides powerlifting? And I know that you did used to do a little bit in tennis, but you were keen to sort of correct me as to the use of the word coaching. So do you want to elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Yeah, so when I was, I don't know, it must have been about 10 years ago. So like my first batch of like work experience I ever did, I did with my tennis coach at the time. And I ended up taking some sort of like junior leader thing that they were, the LTA were running at the time. But as you say, like being able to then take lead sessions for, I think it was like groups of five to seven year olds in tennis at the same time. It's not really coaching because it is it's instructing it's um which is, this is not to disparage it. There is a role and a place for it. The difference is the awareness of the scope and awareness of the framework you're working in, in the fact that when one is instructing there is, there is the framework and there is nothing outside of the framework. And it is your goal to administer to your athletes of whatever age, a certain set of things that they have to do. Um, and it's just to make sure that, that actually happens. There's, there's very little, there's no sort of big picture or going with outside of that framework in that sort of distinction. That's what I would say.
0: Yeah. And the, the analogy you gave me, which I quite liked is uh, you don't call a set of instructions from Ikea a carpenter. Or if you've yeah. just followed them, that yeah. you don't become a carpenter.
1: Yeah, no, exactly that. It's like the, it's your goal is to follow the instructions to get the bookshelf, whereas that's not the same as someone comes to you with a very specific carpentry demand, and you have the tools and the skill set and the experience to be able to do that. What you can't do that if you only know how to follow IKEA instructions.
0: <laughs> and uh, likewise, I don't know who I'm stealing the analogy off, um, but if I follow a recipe it doesn't make me a chef. Like there's a difference between guys who are Michelin star chefs and who can cook to somebody's taste. And, you know, I don't know, whacking a meal in the microwave and uh, setting it for three minutes.
1: There was a whole episode of the body of knowledge podcast with Andy Galpin and all of his friends where they literally go through tiers of understanding from sort of like Baker to cook to chef. And they make distinctions about the sort of scope um, and understanding through that as well. So I'll dig that that episode up for you as well because that i think is really clarifies sort of this uh, point we're trying to get that here
0: perfect and we you sort of mentioned uh quite a while ago in the podcast about the our sort of relationship um in terms of you know what works for me in comp and the difference about oh i know this but i'm going to stay quiet because that's actually going to make things worse um yeah how important do you think the coach athlete relationship is when it comes to programming and training so obviously there's you know, the science behind progressive overload and maybe um, being able to analyze someone's weaknesses and pick exercises for them. Um, how important do you think it is, for example, um, when you were programming for me, obviously I've previously trained myself. I've got my own preconceived, for right for better or worse, ideas of training myself. Um, how important is getting to understand the, an athlete who has trained who isn't a blank canvas before it comes to designing a program that, is going to benefit them physiologically, but also psychologically, where they look at it and think, "Yeah, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make some progress with this program."
1: I think that's probably like as important, if not uh, more important than than the actual mechanics of the numbers and the sets and the reps and the RPEs and all of that thing. Um, it's the sort of it's to say there's the buy-in or that stuff that Brett Bartholomew talks about, but really it's just sort of about um, being genuine and being having integrity so like when when there's things that i don't know and there are lots of things that i don't know and you ask me a lot of good questions a lot of the time but i have to say i don't know to a lot of the questions that you ask me and i think that's important that i i know my own scope and i know when to tell you that we're doing something a bit more experimental and we've been working together for long enough that there's some trust there absolutely if there's anything that looks completely whack you will pull me up on it and say are you sure that's right <laughs> and i will either tell you yes get back to your tempo squatting stop being a wuss <laughs> um, or i'll go oh yes hang on i messed that up let me fix it
0: but it's a set of 10 with a three second lower and a three second rise are you sure yeah. there's not a mistake?
1: Oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> suffer little one. And uh it brings me joy. <laughs> this
0: is the only reason I make you do these things. There is no there is no challenge 500. There is no meat prep. It is just to see you suffer. Oh,
1: sh- he's on to me. He's on <laughs> and, to me, guys. Let me go.
0: Uh, another thing I've noted down is the and this is why I enjoy our chats uh, in and around training so much. Um, is about the benefits of speaking to coaches from other disciplines. So, for example, um, I think it's fair to say you from a powerlifting coaching perspective and myself from a strength conditioning coaching perspective, there are certain things which we um, debate or disagree or uh, entertain each other's opinions on. Um, One of the interesting ones I found that we chatted about was uh, push-pull ratio. Now, I remember when you first started uh, programming for me, And I was sort of counting up the push reps to the pull reps. And in strength and conditioning, there's this idea, rightly or wrongly, of uh, balance, for want of a better word. Um, And as with everything everything in strength and conditioning, the pendulum swings one way and then the other. So for people who aren't familiar with push-pull ratio, there's this preconceived idea. And I'll be honest, I haven't actually seen any research on it, which is bizarre considering how strongly some people have an opinion on it. Um, So what is your opinion on balancing out pushing and pulling movements in training, both for the context of general shoulder health and in the context of powerlifting?
1: I mean, so, so we're talking basically about sort of having a, a certain level of correspondence to spend, depending on who you're talking to of, of say things like rowing movements or yeah. baseballs come to your, your bench pressing and your, overhead pressing and all of that is that what we're getting yeah exactly that okay so what i think about that is why would you want want to implement would you want to put an extra rule onto your training on top of all of the fundamental things like as i say like fatigue management and specificity and all of that and there's only two reasons i could think of why you would implement any extra rule on top of that um and they are either it improves your performance outcomes or B, it, it mitigates injury risk. Um, in terms of improving performance outcomes, I say I'm not particularly sold on that, especially if it's in the context of someone who's doing an actual sport rather than powerlifting, for example, because then all weight training for them is necessarily general. Yeah. So the any sort of carryover is going to be, fairly limited unless they are say brand new to any kind of movement or exercise altogether. Um injury management, I mean, I think the idea comes from there's the idea of being nice and balanced and symmetric. It just it's sounds nice, right? It feels nice when you say it to say, oh my shoulders are healthy because they are balanced and my push pull ratios are balanced and I'm symmetric and I am Vitruvian or whatever, whatever have you. Um but I've just not seen it pan out. I just, no. it's never something that I've seen. I mean, I've, I've had shoulder tweaks and injuries when I've been doing very little pressing and a ludicrous amount of chin ups. Um, so that's something in particular when I was training for an obstacle course race and my shoulder ended up hurting. And I've had times when I have been doing, 30 uh, odd sets of raw bench pressing a week, basically, no rowing, lap pull downs, chin ups or anything at all. And for sustained periods of time and had no shoulder pain. So yeah, again, I, I, I don't wish, I don't wish to extrapolate my anecdote out into a population wide assertion because that would be really, really stupid of me. But I just, I, it's something that I think is founded on an idea that sits, that seems nice. Um, in our heads when we think about it, but I think is perhaps of dubious utility yeah. in actuality.
0: Yeah. And uh, my big word for the day, uh, or second big word for the day with hiatus on my Instagram stories, is uh, spious, which is basically something that sounds plausible. And I probably butchered the pronunciation, but something that sounds plausible, but is fundamentally uh, not true. Um, again, I, I think I stole it from Andy Galpin when uh, he was talking about Joe Rogan and saying that. No, there is actually not less oxygen at the top of Mount Everest. Please stop saying that. And mm. uh, it's the partial pressures. Uh, anyway, yes. Before I one. before I uh, before I waffle on, uh, three questions to wrap up. So, uh, okay. First one is, if you could spend a period of time observing any coach um, coaching their athletes, who would you spend
1: time with, and why? Oh. Um, I think it'd be Mike Tashier or John Kiley. One of the two. They have a lot of overlap in their thinking. Uh, they just apply it to different sports mostly at the moment. Um, just mostly because, I mean, again, we could probably go for another episode just talking about the two papers and the ideas that John Kylie's put out. But in a nutshell, it seems that he is advocating for a biopsychosocial model of training. Is basically the gist of what he is going about, and to see that how that pans out. A in sports that are not my own, say the very individual focus, powerlifting. Say like and with groups and how that works, I would find very very interesting because it's so far out of the scope of of what I have been exposed to, and yet have translated so fluidly into the powerlifting realm. To see where where the the spring of that river is so to speak.
0: Yeah. And there's just so many research papers I would like, and I'm sure will come out from Kylie and others. Like you've just mentioned there, like in my head, I imagine having one, two groups of people given the same training program, one group, uh, a really coherent group. And I don't know, they've got really strong um, leadership qualities and like, I don't know, the captain of the team, if you will, is sort of rallying the troops. Uh, Another group who are, let's say for all intents and purposes, similar athletically, but all come from different backgrounds. There's no group cohesion. Uh, There's no leader saying how good this program is going to be. See what the physiological effects are. Likewise, I'd love to see the effects of a program which is written by the same strength and conditioning coach, but one is delivered by, I don't know, the head coach who the players would run through a brick wall for and who says this is going to be this revolutionary program. And the other group literally just get emailed the program. No context, but it is literally the same program measure I don't know
1: as I've gone on and I've coached you more and more I become less and less interested and even sort of less and less concerned and hyper analytical about the the specifics of the numbers of sets and reps that I put on a program for you and more about making sure that we interact in a positive way we are communicating on the right frequency that that everything that you know and understand that everything I do is it is all because I believe honestly that it will bring you about the best thing best outcomes as at least as far as my skill set and my experience allows and that seems to be it needs to be far more important than any any amount of number of books and ebooks and textbooks or that I could I could hoard and read away
0: and I think there's a lot, to, I mean, anyone who knows me will like, when they say to me, oh, you, you don't write your own programs. I'm like, of course I bloody don't like, if I write, I don't know, five sets of five and then I get there on the day and I'm like, oh, it feels a bit heavy and maybe I do three or I feel great. Maybe I do six. I'm like, oh, I don't want to under train. Oh, I don't want to overtrain. And like, it's just so much easier to be like, oh, why five sets yeah. of five? Oh, Charlie's got me on five sets yeah. of five. It's just, that's, that that's going to be Something,
1: something, if I may, I'll like ask, you one question before you you finish asking me your questions and we wrap this up is first of all it always I'm always humbled when working with you because you are the professional with regards to sports uh, training uh, and all of that that's you with your profession that's what your livelihood depends on um, so two questions about a what just to say what made you want to be coached generally at all in in terms specifically for powerlifting and then the other prong of that question is why some rando that turned up to your competition <laughs> at last minute gave you a singlet, gave you a slap on the back and went and told you to do something stupid on the deadlift
0: <laughs> Brilliant um, So no, I'm,
1: I'm really selling myself here aren't I I was going yeah, to say
0: anyone listening is just going to think he's just fluked his way to 500 just because he really gets on with his coach and is gullible enough <laughs> to uh, <laughs> do whatever the coach tells him to. He's got him doing sets of 10 on a tempo squat. And uh, yeah, no. um, So for me, it's the fact that there was absolutely no reason or no gain from yourself to help me out. Give me a singlet to uh, work out when I should be taking my attempts in order to um, time my uh, warm ups Well, like there was absolutely no, um, what's the word I'm looking for. It's not like when you do something on the premise that I don't know, there will be uh, something in it for you, if that makes sense, which okay. for me very much speaks to my sort of coaching philosophy, which is make a difference and try and help someone. So that immediately almost brought me in, dare I say. Um, okay. Definitely a conceived notion that you knew what you were doing uh, and obviously spoke from experience. And actually, I'm I sorry, think
1: I've managed to keep the charade going for this long. You've
0: done a great job. You've done a great <laughs> job. Um, and ironically, without meaning to waffle, uh, I remember speaking to a friend of mine like after I had a little bit of a quad niggle and uh, he's also a strength conditioning coach and he was like stop talking to me about it go and see a physio and I said to him that to be brutally honest I didn't think it was that serious but if I went to see a physio I would want them to be ballsy enough to say look I've done all the checks I think you're going to be fine but the honest answer is I don't know what you've done. And I would actually respect that opinion more. Even if I'd paid for that opinion, I would respect it a lot more. Um, right. So the fact that if I question you on something and you generally don't know, you will hold your hands up and say, look, this is my best guess, but the honest answer is I don't know. Almost makes me value it a lot more because I think to myself, right, you're not going to chuck something in the training program that you don't have an idea about just to see what happens. No. It's something you've put in there to the best of your experience. So whilst... I am a strength and conditioning coach. Or
1: if there is something that is truly experimental, then we talk it through beforehand and we agree on it. It's, it's, I won't just dictate to you.
0: No. And equally, even though we have, you know, you have sort of run experience with my training, it's not been, oh, I just wonder if this will work. And uh, I've got a sort of studious subject who will willingly uh, comply. It's more, this is what I'm thinking. Here's why I think it's going to help. Yeah. Does this sound like something you're happy with? And also from an egotistical point of view, I obviously am obsessed with my own training. So to have somebody fighting my corner and, you know, almost being able to keep me accountable, which is a massive thing. Like I'll happily let myself down. As I said, if I write five sets of five and I do four sets of five, I can live with myself. If you put down five sets of five on the program and I did four sets of five, I would be like, fuck, I've now got to admit that I've <laughs> wasted his time. You're like, wasting. As, as somebody who writes programs myself, when somebody says I didn't do what you put down, I'm like, well, why? Like, you why? know, why? Why are you wasting my time? So the accountability, the knowledge of being able to break down the lifts, like it's one thing. Obviously, strength and conditioning coach. The clues in the title, you you know, part of your role is you know, depending on which way you slice and dice, it is to get them stronger in relation to helping them with their sport. Um, but Getting somebody strong in the context of powerlifting and the technical proficiency of the lift—that's part of your knowledge base that I value massively, as well as the openness, the honesty, and you saying, "Right, I think I've just got a feeling this will work." What do you think about that? Like, both from a art and science perspective, that for me is invaluable. Okay, and I've I appreciate your fo-
1: kind words.
0: And I've completely forgotten if there was a second part to that question or not. <laughs>
1: well, no, you answered the second part. The second part was was about me specifically, uh, as opposed to anyone else, and the fact that I was just someone who showed up to help.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm glad
1: you had answered that.
0: Showing up to help definitely, well, definitely in itself, you know, helps. Like in the with the athletes I've worked on, I believe there's a reason to see more of what they're about than just them in training. So uh, being able to bounce stuff off you, which is completely irrelevant to my own training, but it's just my sort of thoughts on training or sport or performance is uh, also a very useful adjunct as well. Um, The penultimate question I've got is uh, one recommended resource for the listeners. So I would, if the resource is a lifting based one, I'd also like you to give a non lifting based one, but it can be anything you like.
1: Um, Lifting based Barbell Medicine, their podcast, their website, their articles, everything they've put out is just It was paradigm shifting for me, like in terms of understanding pain, in terms of understanding training stress properly and all the intangibles that go into it. It was just huge for me. And I think everyone should go and digest, especially all of their ones on um, pain and injury management for lifters and athletes. These should be just required reading. It really is that good and it is that, it's practical as well. It's not just airy fairy. It's like you can immediately finish it and take away the, those ideas and start working with your um, with your athletes in pretty much any context.
0: Awesome and a non-lifting based one.
1: Oh, I don't know. Oh, um, what are your audi- What are your audience interested in?
0: Oh well, uh, all two of them have told me that. <laughs>
1: That's just me and you, yeah? Yeah, just me and you. And uh,
0: If it gets to three listeners, then uh, my mum will be involved somewhere. No, oh. so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one on your behalf, which or a couple of resources that you've recommended to me, which I've dived into. Um, so currently reading, and I hope you can remember the author's name, but currently reading uh, Digital Minimalism, which was... Oh, uh, Cal
1: Newport, that's yep. the one. Yeah, that's Digi- a really good book.
0: Um, so Digital Minimalism is basically not so much about saying abort all uh, ideas that involve technology, but just questioning our best use of technology and i think as well as the programming side of things so for example i think we get a lot more from the process from you saying right these are the hours i will be available jot any questions down if it's serious whatsapp me but let's not have drawn out essays of conversations on whatsapp which are unproductive um and likewise just in terms of getting stuff done
1: rather than spending hours on end on instagram pointlessly yeah. you know um it's all about if the the in one word the book is about intent it's just don't intent and autonomy don't let your intent be sapped away by things that may not actually matter as much to you as you think
0: amen to that amen to that um any others you can think of off the top of your head or do you want me to go to the last question
1: go to the last question if i think of anything i'll let you know you can stick them in the show notes awesome um, and just final question is
0: if anyone's got any further questions for you based on stuff we've covered in the podcast how can people get in touch with you
1: uh they can't they basically can't. i mean well they they can try they can try and find me but i if you go so far as to find a way to contact me then i will answer your questions but really why you can just ask someone like you or someone who actually knows what the, it is not thoroughly consumed by imposter syndrome and might actually give you <laughs> give you a proper answer
0: that's very humble of you this is when you realize i put your address on uh, facebook instagram oh, Twitter, you and, uh, people come up with pitchforks and burning blazes and uh demand to well, know if, how you got a, a model to 500 kilos
1: maybe if i can sell them a ninety-nine, nineteen ninety-nine 1999 ebook on a challenge 500 thing then maybe it's worth it you know I was gonna no, say. No, no, no. Good luck.
0: Uh, yeah, the uh, the Charlie Keene Challenge five hundred kilo program: adapt or die.
1: <laughs> oh, that's. I think I might have to change my blog uh, my blog tagline to adapt or die now. <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna be the thing, isn't it?
0: I was gonna say when you see uh, the Challenge five hundred kilo uh, yeah. program floating about, and that's the tagline, you can uh, yeah. you can take all royalties
1: it's the other it's the other parallel i've I've made isn't it that the idea is that if you're not stressed you're dead it's the same thing really isn't it
0: (laughs) brilliant right i think that's a brilliant place to wrap up mate and uh thank you very much i
1: I am grateful that uh, you've allowed me to work with you and it's always humbling that someone who is a professional you've you've worked with me um and it's definitely been you've been working with me and not me just administering to you and i i enjoy every second of it i really do
0: well, the as I said, the uh, the pleasure's all mine, and I'm more than grateful that you've taken someone who literally entered powerlifting just for the sake of feeling somewhat competitive, um, and now qualified for nationals. Bearing in mind, I've never really, as you said earlier in the podcast, I've seen powerlifting as a tool rather than the uh, the be-all and end-all. But to take someone with that sort of attitude and mindset and qualify for nationals is a uh, a lot of credit to you, mate. A lot of credit to you. Yeah.
1: The effort's all yours. I'll give you some numbers and you're crazy enough to get them done. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all on you, mate. Well done.
0: Right. Before, we, uh, before we begin to sound like a romantic first date, let's uh, <laughs> we'll end the podcast there. <laughs> Thanks very much, mate. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care, mate. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to episode... 13 of the platform to perform podcast as you can tell between how easily the conversation flows with myself and charlie the coach athlete relationship and how well we get on really does come to fruition when it comes to meet day if you have any feedback for myself or just want to get in touch you can reach out to me on youtube twitter facebook and instagram if you search todd davidson p2p coaching thank you for listening catch you again in the next episode